Well, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.1 spoke of stirring up the pure minds of his readers by way of reminder. <clears throat> he obviously saw the value of repeating teaching that he had previously given. And those of you who are teachers know that one of the laws of teaching is repetition, right? Uh, we are such that we don't usually get it the first time. Well, in that spirit, I want to stir up the minds of the fathers among us in the area of fatherhood by turning you to what is perhaps the most direct and succinct word to fathers that we have in the New Testament, and that is in Ephesians 6.4. <clears throat> I hardly need to turn to it. I think probably many of you do not as well. You probably have it memorized. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction or admonition of the Lord. And my focus will not be on the first part of that verse. That's sort of a warning. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. I'm not going to deal with that at all. I'm going to focus on the second half. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so from this partial verse, we will take up three things. The responsibility of fathers to bring up their children. The realms in which fathers are to bring up their children. And then the resources provided fathers for bringing up their children. So first, the responsibility of fathers to bring up their children. <clears throat> now, when we think about the vital role that mothers play in the nurture of children, it should be striking to us in some sense that Paul says, fathers, bring up your children. Why does he do that? What is he intending to say by that? Well, I want to make two points, one negative and one positive. First, what he does not mean by saying, fathers, bring up your children he is not saying that fathers are exclusively responsible for the bringing up of their children. This is clear from the very context. Just three verses earlier, he has said, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then he quotes the commandment, Honor your father and mother. That indicates that both father and mother have authority over the children, and the children are to obey both father and mother. Proverbs 1.8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. And then further, in 1 Timothy 5, a widow is to be put on the list that is to be supported by the church. And one of her qualifications or prerequisites is, prerequisites is that she has brought up children. So women bring up children as well. In addition, we can bring in Titus chapter 2 where women are called to be workers at home, where they spend a, a great deal of time with the children. And given the fact that older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands, given the fact that men are to be the main providers and will spend a lot of time outside the home, at least in our day, the women in the home have a tremendous influence upon the children, given the, the sheer amount of time they spend with them. So Ephesians 6.4 is not intended to exclude mothers from the responsibility of child raising. They have an immense responsibility and role to play. So what does Paul mean? Well, by comparing scripture with scripture, this is a basic rule of Bible interpretation. Scripture interprets scripture. Scripture is always consistent with itself. From the general teaching of scripture, we have our answer. And the answer is in the headship of the man. Now, whenever I say headship, I'm not so concerned in this context, but you talk about the headship of the man at a wedding where there's a mixed audience, 
in our society, especially today, I, I, I've been there where I could see the hackles being raised. You know, I could see people getting upset. What do you mean, headship of the man? And so we do well whenever we mention headship to qualify and say headship, male headship, has nothing to do with inferiority and superiority. Nothing whatsoever. Men and women in their essential humanity are absolutely equal before God. <clears throat> and in the blessings of redemption, they are absolutely equal. All those blessings that we saw in Ephesians 1, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, apply equally to women and to men. We're not talking about any inferiority or superiority. We are always talking about God's created order. And the fact is God has called men to be the leader in the church and in the home. As a reminder that he is to be the leader in the church, 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men. And then he goes on to ground that in the creation, that Adam was made first. And so, as long as I'm the pastor of a church, men will be the leaders in the church. Men will read the scriptures, men will do the praying, men will certainly do the preaching, and only men ever will be pastors. Women have a great deal to do in the church, but leading the church is not their role. Despite the winds that are blowing in our day and evangelicalism and the egalitarianism and the so-called soft complementarianism that is coming in, um, no, we're going to hold to what the scriptures say. And men are to lead in the home. Ephesians 5, wives, be subject to your husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the um, head of the body. As, the, as, as, yeah, as, as Christ, you know what? Let me just read it. Ephesians 5.23. As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives are to be to their husbands in everything. Um, we could also look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. One of the qualifications for an overseer in the church is that he be a good manager of his home. And that word manager is the word proistemi. Uh, it means to superintend. It's the word used in 1 Timothy 5.17. The elders who rule well. So a husband is to rule in his home. He is to manage the home. Now, any manager doesn't do all the work, right? Managers delegate. As someone has said, a good manager doesn't do the work of 10 people, but helps 10 people do their job well. And when it comes to raising children, it is certainly a cooperative effort between mother and father. But the point Paul is making in saying fathers bring up your children is that the buck stops with you, Dad. God will ultimately hold you accountable for your children's upbringing. For as long as they need bringing up, as long as they are in their minority years, or even beyond that, as long as they are dependent upon you and under your roof, roof you are the one ultimately responsible for overseeing the process of their bringing up. Your wife will do a great deal of work with them, but you are responsible for what is done to them and what is done with them and how it is being done at every stage in their development. You can delegate a lot of things to your wife and she will do a lot of things. One thing you cannot delegate is your ultimate accountability before God. Even as when Adam and Eve sinned, Eve sinned first. God came looking for Adam in the garden, held him responsible. The Bible talks about having sinned in Adam and not Eve. And so, fathers, you don't have exclusive responsibility to bring up your children, but you have ultimate accountability before God. 
If things go wrong in the bringing up your children, God's going to come after you. And so that's what he means. Fathers bring up your children. So I ask you, men, fathers, do you understand that? And have you faced squarely your ultimate accountability to bring up your children in the ways of God? It's one of your primary callings. You have brought them into the world. Now God charges you with the job of overseeing their upbringing. Are you carrying out that responsibility by the help of God? Why do men often fail in this regard? I think one reason we can say is ignorance. Certainly in society in general, there's an ignorance. In our day, we have wandered so far from the Bible, so far from a Christian worldview, that most men don't have a clue as to what their God-ordained responsibility is in the home. And even if you were to tell them what the Bible says, they would probably mock it and disdain it and ignore it. So the ignorance is, is often a willful ignorance. They don't know and they don't want to know because in our day, they're doing what is right in their own eyes. So ignorance is certainly a problem, certainly in the broad populace where people don't know God and don't have access to the Bible. Uh, men don't know and often don't want to know. Now, it shouldn't be a problem in the church if the Bible's being taught, although it sometimes may be a problem there. Another reason for fathers abdicating their primary responsibility is the sin, are the sins of laziness and selfishness. So often men leave the lion's share of bringing up children to their wives because they're off indulging themselves, maybe overindulging in work, which is their calling, maybe indulging themselves in hobbies, and they're neglecting their duty and putting it all on their wives. That's the sin of laziness and selfishness. As Christians, we don't want to be guilty of that. But I think a more subtle reason why fathers often fall short of taking their responsibility and something that, that Christian men may be more susceptible to is the fact you have such a competent wife. And she's at home doing a good job with the children. She is keeping them under control, hopefully, as the Bible says, with all dignity. She has rules and laws, hopefully God's, and she is enforcing them and maintaining the boundaries and she's just doing a good job. And so you come home from work, and it's easy for you just to say, hey, honey, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. You know, and put up your feet and, and take it easy and fall into a passive mode. That is something, as men, we must not do. She's been at it all day. She's been working hard. She's exhausted. And it's not only physical work, the emotional wear and tear on a woman dealing with little ones all day long is tremendous. And men, when you come home, the thing for you to do is not to let her continue to do that good job, but to relieve her and to say, honey, I'm home now. And for her to be able to shift the primary responsibility and authority to you and for you to take over, give her a break. That's so important to do. If you don't do that, men, you will run the risk of exasperating her. You will tempt her to want to usurp and override your headship. The children do need to be under control. If he's not going to do it, she's going to be tempted to do it and override your headship, which is not good. And you'll also tempt her to lose respect for you if you're not assuming that authority that is yours. So when you come home from work, men, you take over. Give her a break, knowing the wear and tear she's been under, and you take charge and be the primary authority. Now, if you're going to do that, if you're going to oversee your children properly, you're going to need to spend sufficient time with your wife 
listening to her, learning from her, and getting debriefed by her. See, she spends all day, she spends all day with the children. She studies them. She interacts with them. She's learning all about them. She knows their weaknesses, their strengths, their tendencies, their ways of manipulation, their sinful habits, the things that need to be worked on right now in in terms of the discipline and training of the children. She's got a, a, a head full of that from studying the children, and you've been at work. You need to be brought up to speed. And so, men, you need to be humble enough to listen to your wife and to learn from your wife and let her fill you in on what's happening with the children, what she's perceiving and understanding so that you can get on the same page. Be humble. Learn from her. Now, I would say to wives, the proverb, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. You're commanded to respect your husband. He may not see things as you do. He hasn't studied them. He hasn't spent the time. And as you communicate it to him, be respectful. Fill his sails, the sails of his leadership. Don't try to sink his ship. Don't try to put him down and make him feel like, feel like he's inferior because he doesn't know and understand. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. As you communicate that, be respectful. And by the way, a great time to do that as mother and father, get on the same page, is your date night. Husbands, fathers, I hope you know that you're continuing to date your wife. And those date nights can be a wonderful time of comparing notes and your wife filling you in on what's happening with the children and helping you to get on the same page together. And so the children will not be a buffer to you, but will be a bond to you as you talk together and make plans together in how you're going to continue that glorious project of bringing them up. Okay, so so much for the responsibility of fathers to bring up their children. Now, the realms in which fathers are to bring up their children. The verb that is used uh, here, fathers bring up your children, is a word that means to nourish up or to nourish up to maturity. Now, when we ask, what is maturity? Well, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So maturity has to do with the Lord. What is is maturity? Maturity is what God wants us to be and do. God defines maturity. God's word defines maturity, right? It's to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so you want to help them to be all that God wants them to be and do, according to his word. And to learn what the basic areas of your child's life are, which need to be nurtured to maturity, I turn you to, and I'll just read it's one verse, Luke 2.52. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus was fully God, but Jesus was fully human. And Jesus was actually brought up as a child in the home of Joseph and Mary. And he actually grew. And he grew in these four areas. Wisdom, stature, favor with God, and favor with men. So fathers, what are the realms in which you need to bring up your children? Well, here are the four. You are to bring them up intellectually, and that has to do with wisdom, physically, spiritually, and socially. And let's take them up one at a time. The areas where you're to train your children. First of all, when it comes to intellectually training them, 
And what does intellectual have to do with wisdom? Well, knowledge is not wisdom, but wisdom presupposes knowledge. Wisdom is a skillful use of knowledge. So in order to have wisdom, you have to have knowledge. And so you need to train their minds and hope and pray that they'll make skillful use of that knowledge. You know, uh, Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks within himself, so is he. The thoughts that are allowed to program a child's mind will ultimately determine his character and even his destiny. Fathers, do you determine and control what is fed into your child's mind? The mind is of vital importance. We're told to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Philippians 4.8 gives us a think list. Remember, whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, of good report. Think on these things. That's a wonderful, excellent sensor for what gets fed into our children's minds. What they are fed will largely determine what they will think and whether they respond wisely or foolishly to the world around them. So what does it mean, Father, for you to train your children's mind intellectually with a view to them using that knowledge with wisdom? Well, it means overseeing their formal education, right? And if you homeschool, and you know, maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I might not have said it as strongly, I really think homeschooling is becoming a very, very strong option in our day as our society is so secularized and the government schools are so bent on, on feeding an anti-God worldview, homeschooling increasingly becomes an excellent choice in many contexts. But if you choose to homeschool, you need to choose the curriculum and you're responsible for what they're taught even in that curriculum. If you choose another mode of teaching, Christian school or whatever, you're still responsible for what they're taught. You may delegate, but you can't abdicate. You're still responsible for what they're taught. The buck stops with you regarding their formal training. But then we need to oversee their informal education. Ideas, perspectives, worldviews get pumped into their minds via the books they read, the things they watch on TV, the things they absorb from social media and from the music they listen to. And so I ask fathers, do you monitor that input at every stage of their development while they're under your roof? Do you know what books your children are reading? Do you know what they're being exposed to on the television, if you have a television, or on social media? Do you know what music they're listening to? Have you listened to the lyrics? Are they acceptable to you? Do you prove of the medium? Proverbs says, leave the presence of a fool or you will not discern words of wisdom. And fools write books. Fools produce TV programs. Fools are all over the social media. Fools write songs and sing them. And so you need to be the moral watchdog, fathers, as to what thought forms and worldviews are being inculcated into your children through the various media. And so you need to train them intellectually with a view to them using that knowledge to be wise because wisdom is a skillful use of knowledge. But then you need to train them physically. Jesus grew in stature. He grew physically. And fathers, you're responsible to some degree for the physical nurture of your children. You need to see to it that they're well-nourished and trained to be good stewards of their bodies. What does that mean? It means good nutrition. It means a balanced diet. It means not giving them too much sugar, which will affect their, their mental alertness. Controlling their eating patterns, not only what they eat, but when they eat. 
Physical nurture involves sleep schedules, making sure your children get enough sleep, right? But not too much sleep so that you're encouraging laziness. It means training them in good habits of hygiene and personal care, brushing their teeth, their hair, etc. My wife used to say, if my children had met, my boys had messed up hair, she'd say, even animals groom themselves. <laughs> so you're going to go out of this house well-groomed. You're going to at least be at the level of the animals. It, it includes, as they get older, good habits of, of, of bodily training, bodily exercise. First Timothy 4.7 says, bodily training is of some value. It's not as valuable as godliness, but bodily training is of some value. And so it's a good idea to have them train their bodies early. A lot of people grow into adulthood and they they don't have good habits of exercise, which are not good for their health, because they weren't trained in those habits in their youth. Now, I understand that as we involve them in sports, which we did as a family, um, we have to guard that carefully. Sports can be an, an idol in our society. It is. And sometimes it can be fracturing to the family. We tried to have our children in sports, and then we would all patronize. We'd all attend, and they would be family outings. You don't want sports activities to divide the family. Uh, But it can be done in a way that cultivates family life. But physical exercise is good. Should the care of our bodies and our children's bodies be part of our training? Well, I think it, it should. 1 Corinthians 6 says that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit and that we've been bought with a price. And God says, glorify God in your body. So you need to help your children to glorify God in their bodies. And so there's intellectual training, there's physical training. And uh, let me, before I pass on from that, there's oversight of your children's uh, development, physical development, also includes imparting to them a God-honoring view of their sexual identity and their sexual powers. Listen to Proverbs 6. Proverbs has a lot of good instruction in this area. Proverbs 6, 20 to 24 is going to say, My son, observe the commandment of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. In these chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7, he's talking to the young man about sexuality to guard him from immorality. And fathers, it is your job with your sons, and mothers, it is your job with your daughters to train them and teach them about the dignity and the sanctity and the beauty of sexuality as God intends it as well as the boundaries that God has set for it. You want to give them training according to their age level. Answer their age-appropriate questions, but don't give them more than they really need to know at any given age. Brothers and sisters, you know they will be deluged with the wicked, God-hating, God-opposing worldview of, of society regarding every aspect of sexuality. We are in the midst of a moral revolution, which is an immoral revolution, the likes of which we have never known. And you need to inculcate into your children God's view of sexuality, its dignity, its beauty, its intended purpose, and have them be unashamed of what the Creator says about their sexuality and be able to stand against the wiles of the devil and the ways of the world in that regard. You know what the latest is? I heard this, I think, Al Mohler's briefing. It is now being propagated that it is immoral to have children. 
because we need to preserve the planet ecologically. Immoral to have children. That's the latest, and you can expect much worse. But it is your privilege to teach them about the beauty, the dignity, the sanctity of their sexuality so that they don't learn it from their peers and from a world that is all too willing to teach them God-hating ways. And then, spiritually, you are to train them. Jesus grew in favor with God. Well, was he ever in disfavor with God? No. But the more he learned of the will of God in his word, the more he obeyed. You, you see that? Uh, it can't say, mean that he went from disfavor to favor. But he had to learn the scriptures as a boy in his humanity. And the more he learned, he obeyed perfectly, right? New truth, obedience. New truth, obedience. And in that sense, he grew in favor with God. So, fathers, it is your job to spiritually nurture your children. It's not primarily the job of the church to do that. It is your job. What does that mean? Well, it's such a vast subject, but let me speak broadly about the two main areas where you're to train them spiritually, formally and informally. Formally a good idea for you to worship God as a family, to gather your family and gather them daily if possible, as regular as possible, to spend some time singing, praying, reading God's word, explaining God's word to them. See, Joshua said, as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. He didn't say, as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord. As to my family, I'll have to check and see what they're going to do. No, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. And so have times of family worship. Fathers, don't have your wife initiate that. You initiate that. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be elaborate. I think consistency and earnestness is the important thing. Bringing them into the presence of God you know, help you discern where they are spiritually too as to how they respond. You'll get a a, a bead on, on where they are. Also, formal spiritual education means make sure they attend church as long as they're under your roof. Now, some parents are going to say, well, the children get older as teenagers, they don't want to go to church, and, and I don't want to force them to go to church because it will turn them off. It won't turn them off, parents. What will turn them off is hypocrisy in the home inconsistency in the home, that will turn them off. But taking them to church, you're exposing them to the God-intended means of grace intended to save their soul. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. God is present in the gatherings of his people in a special way. We're the temple of God. And you want them exposed to that. Now their own rebellious hearts may be turned away, but it won't be because they went to church. It'll be in spite of the fact that they were exposed to the truth. But besides formal spiritual nurture, there needs to be informal spiritual nurture. And Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 7, says it well. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That's the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You get that? First, it will be, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. That's a beautiful passage instructing you to 
teach your children informally in the everyday situations of life. Now notice that the first thing is that these things are to be on your heart. You need to internalize them. You need to be living out the word of God. And then you need to teach them to your children. It's trying to help them look at all of life through the lens of scripture. This is the fear of God, isn't it? The beginning of wisdom. Making God the reference point in all of life. God is the central point in all of life. And so, as our brother reflected on the beauty of the morning the other day, to point out to your children the beauty of God in creation, the, the diversity of animals and, and, and plants, and the beauty of God's artistry and the creation is something you can do. I love walking with our almost three-year-old, you know, a couple blocks down to the seminary, and it takes a long time. But it's precious because she's looking at things looking at the little anthill and the little ants and the little plant. And, of course, she wants to pick those things up and wants Grandpa to carry them. And, and, but she's learning. That's her world. And, and we want to bring God into that, that God is the creator. We have so many illustrations of the depravity of the human heart, right? When they read about sin and hear about sin and when they see sin, to point out why that's so, because man has turned away from God. And when they hear you praying for the big things and for the little things, they hear you giving thanks for the little things and the big things. They learn to be dependent on God. They learn to be thankful to God. When you point out their sins and how they're in violation of the law of God, they're learning. And then always when you point out their sin, never do that without pointing them to the place of cleansing from sin, Jesus Christ. Never lay the burden of guilt on them without bringing them to the fountain for sin and uncleanness, Jesus. That would be cruel. And so to train them informally, fathers, you need to spend time with your children, right? Yes, you have to go to work, but don't be so absorbed in your work and hobbies that you don't spend quality time with your children to teach them informally. And so you're responsible to train them intellectually and physically and to bring them up spiritually. And then finally, socially. Jesus grew in favor with men. That speaks of his social development. Fathers, you need to oversee and manage the cultivation of social skills in your children. Teach them good manners. Teach them how to be polite. Teach them what is socially acceptable. Do you know that Jesus, Jesus was sensitive to the social customs of his day, and he embraced them. You say, social schmotial, who cares? Well, Jesus did. When he was invited to the house of Simon in Luke 7, and that's when the woman came in and washed his feet with her hair, and he rebukes, he ends up rebuking Simon with these words. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. Simon, you didn't do the socially acceptable things of a hospitable host. And Jesus called him out on that. He went along with that. You should have done these things because this is what this society sees as, as, as social amenities. Love, in 1 Corinthians 13, does not act unbecomingly. And that means proper social decorum. So that means we need to train our children how to act in various social situations. How to address adults. For most of us, we train our children to say Mr. and Mrs. I'm intrigued by the Amish culture. Everybody's on a first-name basis. I was talking to somebody about that. I think it goes back to the Anabaptist heritage. 
where they were resentful of the hierarchy, and so they want to level everything. So the most esteemed bishop in the community, one, one of them, goes by Cookie Elmer, <laughs> you know, one of the men who was a, actually probably a Christian man. Um, so different societies perhaps do it differently, but, but how does your society uh, address adults, you know, respectfully? Teach them how to, how to greet adults. Not ignore greetings, but make eye contact with adults with an open face, with friendliness, saying hello, answering their questions politely, not hiding behind your skirt, not ignoring them. Teach them how to respond rightly to adults. Teach them proper table manners. And all their social interactions, teach them to serve others and love their neighbor. I'll tell a little funny story. We were training our children in polite responses, and my son... One of my sons, he knew only two things. He knew to say before eating, thank you for this food, in Jesus' name, amen. And we taught him to answer the phone, hello, who is it, please? And one day, the phone rang, and my little son, I don't know, four years old, runs to the phone, and he says, thank you for this food, in Jesus' name. (laughs) And then the smile crosses his face like, oh, man, I got it wrong. I had a 50-50 chance, and I got it wrong. That's my other saying. <laughs> it was just hilarious. i never forget, thank you for this food. And then a smile came, Cheshire smile, like, oh, man, I got it wrong. <laughs> but fathers, if your children turn out to be ill-mannered and rude or with weird mannerisms, some of the blame may be laid at your doorstep. Final point. The resources provided for the bringing up of your children. Fathers, the buck stops with you. Your wife has a tremendous amount of work to do under you. But when there's failure in the home, God's going to come looking for you like he came looking for Adam. The realms in which you're to train them, intellectually and physically, spiritually and socially, what resources has God provided you? Well, the text is pretty clear. Fathers, bring them up, nurture them to maturity in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There they are. Discipline and instruction. The word discipline is the Greek word paideia. It literally means child training. It involves verbal instruction, but it goes beyond that. Jay Adams used to say it is discipline with teeth. It involves enforcing instruction and securing certain behavior by means of the God-appointed instrument. Tell me what it is. The rod. And let me just give you some proverbs which talk about the rod. 13.24, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 23.13 and 14, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol, which perhaps means the grave, an early death. Proverbs 22.15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And Proverbs 29 and verse 15 says, I believe it's the rod and reproof. Yes, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. You can see that the use of the rod is not an expression of hatred. It is an expression of love. And friends, it is not child abuse Let me say as strongly as possible, to neglect the rod is child abuse. If it is true, and ask anybody who has at least a two-year-old, and they'll tell you it's true, foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. 
what will drive it from him? The rod. And if you withhold the rod, that means you will allow that foolishness to grow and to germinate into maturity. And when it does, it will cause untold harm to the child and to others. That's child abuse. To neglect the rod and not drive out the foolishness, that's abuse. The world has it backwards, as always. God has it right. Now, we need to be discreet in our day if you don't want to be put in prison or have your children taken from you, and there are discreet ways to do it. But, oh, my, God has appointed the rod, and he has not rescinded that. That is the loving means for training your child. Now, I'm going to rattle off a bunch of ways in which the rod is to be used, but I'm just going to state them. In order to learn more about these things, you have to come to the child training class in August. But how are we to employ the rod? I'm just going to rattle them off authoritatively in God's name, lovingly, reasonably, proportionately, effectively, consistently, prayerfully, corporately, that is, both parents agreeing, calmly, early, and jointly with verbal instruction. Uh, I'm not going to unpack those now, but God willing, we will in August. That's one tool one means, bring them up in the discipline, the paideia of the Lord. The other is bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. And that is a rich word. It's the Greek word nuthesia, compound word. Nous is the word for mind. Tithemi means to place. It means to place in the mind. And generally when that word is used, you can track it out. It's somebody's going astray or tempted to go astray. And you're going to put things in their mind to keep them on the, on the right path. Nuthesia, instruction, admonition. This has to do with verbal instruction. Now, as your children get older, you move away from the paideia. You don't spank your 15-year-old, but you move from the paideia to the nuthesia. More of the verbal instruction, more of the appeal to their conscience takes over, right? In the early days, in the really early days, the paideia, the rod, predominates because they don't understand a lot. They understand that they're wrong, but their vocabulary isn't developed. But you move from the paideia to the nuthesia, And in this regard, the book of Proverbs is an excellent guidebook for the instruction of our children. And again, like I did with the way to use the rod, I'm going to rattle off some of the themes in the book of Proverbs. I have a notebook. I took some months to track out the themes in Proverbs. It's a a rich resource. I'm going to rattle off some of the themes in the book of Proverbs that have everything to do with what you need to train your sons and daughters in. Proverbs teaches us about right friends the right kinds of people to have as friends and those to avoid, the value of heeding parental instruction, the value of listening to reproof and correction, the importance of seeking wise counsel, has much to say about the right and wrong use of the tongue, our speech. It teaches about diligence versus laziness. It teaches about humility versus pride. It teaches about self-control of our temper and our appetites. It teaches us about the fear of the Lord. It teaches about discretion, proper and improper social conduct, characteristics of the wise and foolish, teaching about kindness and compassion, about faithfulness and loyalty, about the dangers of sexual promiscuity and the wiles of immoral people. It teaches us about honesty and justice. It teaches us about a godly woman. We studied at Mother's Day, Proverbs 31. It teaches about how to raise children. It teaches us about money. It's right and wrong pursuit and use. It teaches about ethical and unethical business practices. It teaches us about truthfulness and integrity integrity versus deceit. Now, which one of those would you say, ah, that's not so important? My kid doesn't need that. 
No, they need all of these things. These things need to be imparted to the children by means of nuthesia. And what will that involve, fathers? It involves, first of all, you learning and internalizing these things, right? Your life will either underline or undermine your teaching. And then it involves much communication with your children, much time spent with them to teach them. It will involve multiple types of communication, encouragement, correction, rebuke, entreaty, instruction, warning, admonition, showing them the benefits of obedience. So there we have it. Fathers, for some of you, this has been just a review of things that you have known and internalized and practiced for years. If that's the case, praise God. Uh, keep on doing it. Use this as a checklist to see how you're doing in these areas. For others of you, it may be somewhat overwhelming. Don't let it be overwhelming. God would not have you be frustrated. God would not have you be overwhelmed. He would have you raise your vision and your sights, perhaps, as to what fatherly training is about if your sights and vision is too low. But don't be overwhelmed. Know this, that God always gives grace equal to the calling. His grace is always sufficient. If he calls you to it, he will not mock you. If he calls you to make bricks, he's not going to withhold straw. If any lack wisdom, let him ask God. And one of the things about raising children is you start off young, and it's a progressive deal, right, Um, in most cases. And so you get to learn as you go. Don't be overwhelmed. God's grace is sufficient. Seek him for his grace. But I would say if there's anybody here who doesn't have God as your father, dear friend, he is the best father in the world. And having God as your father is one of the best ways to to be a father. Really, like I said earlier, how do I deal with this, Lord? How do I deal with my son and daughter? And then say, well, God, how do you deal with me? I'm a son. I'm a daughter. You're a father to me. Let me imitate you. Let me do with my children what I see you doing with me. It's of great value to have God as your father in being a father But the greatest need to have God as our Father is we're not going to go to heaven and live with God eternally unless God becomes our Father. Because we are by nature children of wrath. We're under the wrath of God. We're sons of the devil, the Bible says. But you can become a son, a daughter, a child of God. But there's only one way. There's only one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The unique son of God, Jesus, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died in the place of sinners so that by his death on the cross he would suffer the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And if you turn from your sin and your rebellion and your independence from God and you turn to Jesus and put your trust in him alone, God will take all of your sin, even your future sin, put it on Jesus. It will be paid in full and you will be forgiven And he will be your father in this life to care for you. And when you die, he will take you to his his own home to be with him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is sufficient for every good work. Certainly the work of raising children, these precious souls, these lives that will live forever. 
It's one of the greatest works we can do. Thank you that your word is sufficient to equip us. Thank you for the fathers here. Thank you for many of them who have done and are doing these very things. May they continue by your grace. And where they are falling short, strengthen them and help them to do better for your glory and for the good of their children. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, in closing, hymn 77 from the hymnal, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven.